Welcome to the Backstory Podcast. I'm your host, Colby Kolb. And on today's episode, it's really an interesting conversation we're about to have with someone who is an artist, but someone who has multiple careers as a media personality and someone who I used to work with. So we'll probably talk about stuff and we'll laugh because we used to work together. I'm talking about Moni Love. Hello, Moni. Welcome to the uh, Backstory Podcast. What's up, boss man? See, you, you're trying to be all—you're trying to be all humble over there, and you don't want to—you don't want to tell the complete truth. This—this this man, okay, is—is is part responsible for my grooming in this industry, and has been my boss several times in my uh, radio journalist journey. So you just—you just didn't want to say that part, did you? <laughs> no, I didn't, I didn't want to dig into that, but you know, it's, it's interesting. <laughs> I was just telling Moni that I sat next to her daughter at her oldest daughter at an event last week. And I just couldn't believe I remember she was a little girl and she's yeah. like a grown woman now with a child. So it's like, wow, life has really like changed and we are we're really grown up. But we grew up hip hop. So we we're like in this thing called hip hop. And I wanted to talk to you because I think you have a very interesting story. And a lot of people know, okay, well, Moni Love is from London and she came to the East Coast and, you know, she made a music. But there's just the love of this genre we call hip hop and how we're able to like live our lives and raise our families off of it. I always find it interesting to talk to folks like yourself and myself who literally started when hip hop started. We saw it be birthed. We were a part of the culture. We wasn't making no money and we was just out here and just enjoying it. And we got yeah, so many really. stories to tell, <clears throat> so many friends. That was really good. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about your journey. So you grew up in London and talk a little bit about your introduction to hip hop. Well, it, uh, you know, definitely grew up in South London, born and raised, and hip hop came to us by way of the movement end of it. So B-boying, so the B-boys, the B-girls, and the, the, the dance art form portion of hip hop. That's how the culture hit us. That and the music, of course, you know, Flash, Melly Mel, Furious, Fox, Hill Gang, those things made their way over. So it was the movement part, really, for the most part, that captivated us, the youth in England. And then from there, we kind of branched off into doing other facets, into other facets of the hip hop culture. Some people became graph writers, some people became DJs, some people stuck with the b-boying, some people became MCs, myself being one of those. And so it had a really, we were definitely obviously steps behind the evolution of the culture in the United States, the country of its birth in New York City, you know, and spreading everywhere else in the US. Us in England, definitely steps behind, but for sure, developing our own little scene in England, if you will, and therefore embracing a lot of the groups that started coming over to do tours and things of that nature, and then developing our own music scene in England based off of our influence from what was happening in the United States. So, you know, there was me, I, you know, developed into an MC. Some of my boys, we branched off, we got people have groups, different pockets of London, England, outside of London, groups, people making records, record labels, signing us in the UK, people really making headway in the UK, having songs out, charting, things of that nature. And I came up through those trenches in England also. So, you know, being able to reach a level where I had music out in, in, in the United Kingdom and in Europe before even establishing myself as an artist in the United States. 
what was one of the first records that you heard or that you was like, man, I love this. I want to do this. I think it was probably the message between the message and rapper's delight. Those were the two things that, that charted in England. Right. And that was huge because it was hip hop had not charted before. We'd never seen anything like it. I think the closest thing we ever saw was Malcolm McLaren's video for Buffalo Girls. That was huge. Yeah. 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 And then after that, we saw, you know, the message and we saw, you know, uh, Sugar Hill Gang with Rapper's Delight on what would be our version of American Bandstand, which was a show called Top of the Pops, you know, where we, we, we would only sometimes see glimpses of black music culture on there, you know. So when it came through, through Sugar Hill Gang, through Melly Mel, Furious Five and Flash, it was huge for us in England. When did you realize or understand that as you are a Jamaican as well, hip hop had Jamaican roots, really the, you know, the, the person who created it was Jamaican. So did you, when did you make that connection? Honestly, when we started getting video, like when we started getting movies uh, like wild style and actually looking at the, the histories and meeting people also when people like Funkin Klein used to come to England and bring groups over and we would get to hear, you know, speak to Funk Incline, a person like myself and other people deep in the scene, be backstage, listen to the stories. And through those two vehicles, watching movies and, and speaking to the few people that would come over, we, we then came to understand, you know, the breakout that happened in the Bronx with a cool heart. Yeah. So then you decide you want to be a rapper and you want to start making music. So talk a little bit about that part of the journey. And then how were you discovered? Well, because of the fact that there was a budding scene in England, it was a good time because a lot of British labels were like, what is this new thing? What is this new musical phenomenon? And, you know, can we tap into it type vibe? And us, the kids, were putting on our own shows in our own local community centers and things of that nature and um, emulating what was going on in the United States as, as far as from what we could see from the movies that we would watch and as far as what we could hear from... 10th generation cassette tapes, you know, that would make their way over to us for us to see. So based off of those things, we kind of developed a scene. Scouts would come around, scout out what was going on in different areas of London and scoop up acts, sign young kids. And I was one of those young kids that got signed. So then you are summoned to the United States. And how old were you then? You had to be like a late teenager or something. Yeah, I was 17, about to turn 18. It was my, yeah, during my 18th year. I hadn't turned 18 yet, but it was during the beginning of my 18th year. I moved uh, to New York. So what was that like? I mean, a young woman from Europe. Had you ever been to New York before? Yeah, I mean, I did. I had the, uh, you know, I I, kind of had a head start because uh, one, my paternal grandparents moved from Jamaica uh, to New York and they had been in New York for years and years and years by the time I got there. So you moved to New York and it's like 1988 and this is like hip hop. I mean, we're talking Eric B and Rakim, Big Daddy Kane, like it is the, the golden era of hip hop and you're in the midst of it as an artist. What was that like? A culture shock. It was a culture shock and it was amazing because at the same time I'm around people that I had posted on my wall. At the same time, it was like, oh, wow, I really do this. 
So I can't just be there, be here and be in awe of these people. I got to come with it because I'm actually an artist. Like I had to remind myself that I am actually an artist, very much so new, very much so green and very much so from a different country, but I'm still an artist. So I can't be, I can be starstruck, but I have to snap out of it and allow myself to deliver what I'm supposed to be here to do so that these people can uh, develop a level of uh, respect for me as a peer. So what was one of those artists though, that in that moment that when you met him, it was just like, you were so superstar struck. Big Daddy Kane. Okay, got it. Everyone always says Kane, right? Because he's it so was, charismatic. Yeah, it was yeah. Big Daddy Kane because it, yeah. it, it, he was just he was just lyrically a god. And um, I met him before I met Rakim. Right. So I had because I, I had a similar experience with Rakim. But the first person you're saying you're asking the first person that would definitely be Big Daddy Kane. And you were kind of label mates, right? Because it was the Warner Brothers. Was we were label mates because I was signed to Warner Brothers under Benny yeah. Medina. And he was under Cold Chillin', also signed to Warner Brothers through Benny Medina. Yeah. McDonald's is not new to chicken. So maybe stop questioning their chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So then you put out your um your first, was Moni in the middle of your first single or was it something else? Honestly, my first ever single in the, in, in the UK was a song called I Can Do This. How come I've yeah. never heard that? I, I don't yeah, think the, because these were these were UK releases. This right. I had not, you know what I mean. I didn't even have a US deal at the time. Right. So, right. so yeah, yeah. So, so when did Demoni in the Middle come out, and where did that come about? Like, what was that? Where did that song come from? It's funny you should ask. That song derives from being on one of my first tours, which was the Big Daddy Kane tour. Okay. I was part of Queen Latifah's outfit, and it was Big Daddy Kane, Queen Latifah. Digital Underground and Third Base. And sometimes in some towns, uh, Eric B and Rakim, and some towns we would hit, uh, EPMD would get on it too, right? And uh, it was Big Daddy Kane was, you know, Mr. The It Guy. One day after the show, myself and his dancers went to go get McDonald's, do a McDonald's. Scoob and Scrap. Scoob and Scrap. Me and Scrap went with some girls, a lot of girls with cars. We went to go do a McDonald's run and bring it back to the hotel after the show. And um, Kane had given scrap instructions. All right. I like, kind of like Moni. I want to see what she's about. Ha- tell her I like her and hand her my food. And if she brings my food to me when you guys get back from the hotel, from the McDonald's to the hotel, then I'll know that she's interested in getting to know me too. If not, then I know she was. Because Kane is too cool right. to just to just talk to you like that. You know what I mean? He's mm-hmm. just too cool of a dude. Yep. And so when we were at the McDonald's and Scrap explained this process to me, I said, well, I like you. So how about you and I talk and you give him his food himself? And that was that. <laughs> You've always been so honest. <laughs> <laughs> so, and so that's how Moni in the Middle, the song Moni in the Middle came about, which was my first release uh, in the United States. Yeah, so that's how that song came about. So talk a little bit about it. So Moni in the Middle comes out and all of a sudden you're like, it's everywhere. And and it's it becomes sort of, there are just songs in hip hop that are like picture moments in hip hop, right? Like you got It Takes Two, which was came out around that time. You know, you got 
all these big records that come out. But Moni in the Middle is something like, did you know when you made it and it came out and you started going around that it would just be a lifelong everywhere you go? Like that's I didn't realize, no, Cole, I didn't. I didn't, re I didn't realize that Moni in the Middle was going to be a thing until I looked out my window of where I was living, which was around the corner from Baisley Projects in Queens, right? And, and some, some this new housing development, these new duplexes that were built. I looked out the window and saw some kids getting off the bus coming home from school and saw them singing, Moni in the middle, where she at? In the middle, Moni. And at that point I was like, oh my God, I'm onto something. Right. What about back in the UK though? Like, I mean, I mean, you were living in New York, but did you get messages from people in the UK about this record as well? Not at first. I saw it. I saw it blow up in the in the U.S. first before that happened. So then you have the song that comes out and now you're like in the midst of hip hop royalty on this tour, which, by the way, you developed a friendship with a very young Tupac who wasn't really known yet. He was like a, a roadie for Digital Underground, right? Yeah, absolutely. A roadie for Digital Underground. So we we both bonded because of the fact that we were both the newbies. In, in the teams, like I was a newbie for Latifah's camp and he was a newbie for the Digital Underground camp. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah so. I just remember you telling us a bunch of stories about your time yeah. just being on the road and, and developing that friendship. And you could have never imagined what Tupac was going to become at that time. Did you have any idea like this guy was special? Definitely, yes. But not necessarily knowing exactly what type of an impact he was going to have and exactly what shape it was going to be. But definitely he had something about him that allowed you to understand that he was not the average person. He encompassed enough passion in, within his personality, enough for 10 people. That you did get from him. I mean, for example, when I met him, I got on tour and I, well, actually I met him over the phone before I even met him for real, for real, because the first few dates of the Big Daddy Kane tour, I wasn't on them because I was visiting. It started right after Christmas and I was visiting my mother in Toronto because my mother lived in Toronto. So I was visiting with her and then I was going to pick up the tour it started. They all left from New York. I didn't leave with them because I was in Toronto. So I flew in to some place where they're at. I don't remember where. And I flew in. So the first few shows they did without me. And I remember one of Latifah's dancers, 99, Allison, who was my best friend at the time, she put me on the phone with him because apparently he had been he had heard my music and was like, she rhymes so dope and da, da, da. when is she coming? Can't wait to meet her type vibe. Mm -hmm. And so when one time when one of the dancers called me, they put him on the phone. He was like, yo, my name is Tupac. I can't wait to meet you. I'm with Digital Underground. Like, yo, how you rhyme like that? And, da, 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 da. and very excited and very passionate to the point where I was like, okay, can you give the phone back to Allison now? And, <laughs> and he gave the phone back to Latifah's dancer, Allison, right, 99, because her dancers were 99 and 007. I mean, she was 007, excuse me. And then I said to her, I was like, yo, don't put no weird people on the phone with me no more ever again. Like, what's wrong with you? So like, Tupac was a weirdo. That's what you're saying. Initially, he was a weirdo. Initially on the phone, he was a weirdo. I was like, yo, who is that? Don't put nobody on the phone when I'm trying to talk to you. What's wrong with you? So as he ascended in his, uh, did you guys stay in touch and stay connected as his star rose uh, during the uh, early 90s? We did, but we were the tightest when we were on the road. And then for a short while after we got off the road and he did things like 
the all around the world same song that was his first time of actually getting bars yeah. on a song um mm-hmm. which was the uh, a song that was featured in nothing but trouble the dan Aykroyd john candy movie with yep. demi moore and um digital underground was featured in it and he was actually in it too as part of digital underground we were still tight then but as things progressed and he got bigger we 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 kind of drifted a little bit and as far as our, our friendship, I mean, the, the bottom line and, and there's there have been other places where I've said things and there have also been other places where things have been taken out of context. Mm-hmm. But right here on the backstory, let's just put it out there, make it completely clear. Pop wanted to date. I didn't want to date because I wanted to protect our friendship. We had a really tight friendship. Right. And I didn't want I didn't want to spoil that. And I didn't want to tamper with that. And when I expressed to Pac, because this is all while we were still on the road, I was like, I don't I don't want to do that. That's not where I want to go with this relationship. He got mad at me. He was mad because he's a he's a he's an old, he's a very passionate person. And um, when he feels strongly about a point of view, a topic, whatever it may be, he is absolutely physically passionate about it. So he got mad at me. And so, you know, when we got off the road, there was a period of time where we didn't speak because he was still mad at me, essentially. But he got over it. And then by the time he was filming Juice, he had formed a friendship with my brother also. Um, My brother still lives in England, but my brother used to come back to the States a lot at the time. He formed a friendship with my brother. My brother was on set of Juice like every day with Pac in his trailer. Uh, and on the set and so my brother would call me or what have you and then Pac would get on the phone and by that time I was married with said daughter that you just sat next to uh not so long ago at the event we were all at grown daughter yes (laughs) he's he you know I was I had just had her and uh was married to her father at the time and my brother's on the set and he put and Pac is in the background going who's that Moni give me the phone, give me the phone. He takes the phone from my brother and he's like, come to the set, come to the set. And I'm like, I'm not coming to no set. I'm not coming out there. Like, what's like, to come to the set. I know you married. I don't care. Ain't nobody going to do nothing. Just come to the set and hang out with a G. And I'm like, I'm like, all right, yeah, I'm not coming, okay? Because that would be disrespectful to what I got going on here. It's like, I don't care how many times you got get married or how many kids you have. You're going to always be my G. And I'm just like, okay, okay, Pac. So, so yeah. for the record, Moni, you passed on Big Daddy Kane and Tupac. Just for the record, I just want to put that out. <laughs> for the record. You ain't gotta say it like that. But that, you know, listen, you you a G, you a true G. Like, like you respect. <laughs> listen, it is so hard for a woman in hip hop because this is all dudes, pretty much. Right, 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 right. And so, like, if, if you cross that line with intimacy, it just makes everything weird. So you were like, I respect you and your talent and your friendship, and I don't want to cross that line. And that's admirable for you to say that. Like, you know, like that's that that meant that means a lot in in the long term of things. That's, so anyway, that's really where I was at with it. That yeah, really yeah. is where I wanted to protect those relationships and those friendships. And that's why to this day, me and Kane, me and Kane, cool as a fan. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? I'm yeah. like, I I love his family. You know, he he loves the fact that he loves every time I see he sees me with my family and everything. I'm just really glad that I have that relationship with so many men in this business. You know what I mean? And and it's and I'm happy with myself that I had that type of foresight back then too. Yeah. You know what I mean? No, of course. Yeah, that was you were way ahead of your time, sister. Because <laughs> a lot of women would be like, like I, especially you get caught up in the celebrity of it and you know, and then 
and it's just the art when you're an art person, a creative, and y'all in that space, like the in that space, exactly. It's, it's you know, it can it. go, it can go down. It can yeah. go down. It can, you yeah, know? It does go down. Shoot, there's a whole <laughs> album about how it went down. But so anyway, <laughs> so then you ascend, you with Queen Latifah, and then she is just on a rocket ship, and then there's ladies first. Talk a little bit about that record. Well, Latifah and I met in England when said ambassadors were bringing certain artists to the UK. And one time, an, um, one of these said ambassadors, which was a guy named Funkin' Klan, I always talk about him. I don't think that people talk about him enough in this business. Agreed. He's a front runner as far as being an, an ambassador for hip hop and bringing different groups over to the UK and Europe on mini tours Thank and you. things of this nature. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he bought Queen Latifah on one said tour with Jungle Brothers, True Mathematics, Shore Up G, and I got to meet them at a club called Dingwalls in Camden Town in London. You know, he had heard that I was a bubbling MC from like the club promoters because, you know, the British scene, we do our little shows in these same spots that host these American artists when they come over. So the promoters obviously and Funk and Klein say, oh, this is Moni Love. You know, this little girl, she's from little girl, right? This little girl, she's from um South. She's from South London. She's from Battersea. You know, she does her thing. So then Funk and Klein and I get to talking. He's like, oh, well, let me introduce you to the guys that are over on the tour this time. This is Queen Latifah. This is Chill Rub G. This is True Mathematics. These are the Jungle Brothers. I met them all at the same time. And Latifah and I struck up a friendship, like a real, you know, sisterly friendship that started then and continued on. And, and to the point where we're blowing up our, our phones with large international telephone bills that I had to get a Saturday job to pay my mother back for. And, you know, she spoke about doing a song. She would ask me if I could rhyme. I said, yes, I kicked me something. I kicked her something. And at that point, at that instant, she was like, we're going to do a song together. And, it, and from, from that instant, when she said that, it wasn't until eight months later that we actually recorded uh, Ladies First. And so talk about the impact of that song on your life. What was that like? Because that was such a big record. Kobe, I didn't realize it was such a, it was, in hindsight, now I'm realizing Latifah knew what she was doing all along. She did. She knew she wanted to create some type of a female anthem, right? I didn't. I was just having a hell of a good time. You know me, Kobe. When I'm in creative mode, I'm just like, hey, I'm hit. You know what I mean? You know me of all people, right? Mm -hmm. And that's the same type vibe that I was on back then. And it was the same space that I was in. I was like, this music is dope. This beat is dope. Mark the 45 King laced us. People you don't know? talk about Mark the 45 King. Yo, Mark is one of the funkiest human beings I've ever met. Yeah. And it's like, and, and he's almost like, he's such a genius that sometimes you just don't get him. Yeah. Right? He's one of those type guys. And he laced us with this. And, and there were elements of it that wasn't even there when he first handed us the beat. And he's like, if this is going to sound like this. Ooh, do, 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 do. And this is going to sound like this. And I'm like, okay, one flew over the cuckoo's nest. But it all made sense. Yeah. Mark made it all make sense. Right. And so yep. I was excited about doing this song and so excited that while we were while we were writing the song, I couldn't even write the whole song without writing a couple of lines and being like, listen to this, listen to this, listen how this sounds. And then write two more lines. Listen to this, listen to this. Like it was a hell of a studio session, that session. It was just very excitable. The whole session was like that. And that spilled, that energy spilled onto the song, which is why Kobe to this day 
wherever and whenever you see me perform that song, you will see this giddy excitement coming from this 52-year-old woman that will, while you're sitting watching me perform this, it'll transport you back yeah. to the time when that song came out. Life was so much different then, too. Like, just yeah. the, culture were, <laughs> the culture was so much different now. Yes. It's, it's a whole yes. different story. Yes. So McDonald's is not new to chicken. So maybe stop questioning that chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You have your, um, you were able to have a very successful career as an artist. You also were a very young mother. How were you able to maneuver, like, because uh, I believe you were, uh, was it, it's a shame that you were pregnant during It's a Shame or? Yes, yeah. and the video, pregnant in yeah. the video. Yeah. yeah. And that was your second album or was that on the first album? It's a shame's the first album. First album, okay. Yeah, It's a Shame's yeah. the first album. Money in the Middle and It's a Shame were the two songs that I was actually nominated for a Grammy for, for those two mm-hmm. songs. Mm-hmm. And the video for It's a Shame, I was pregnant in that video. Yeah. Yeah. So, so how were you able to maneuver just the family part of it and being in hip hop? Because at that time, now it's it's fine. You know, Cardi has a couple kids. Carisha got a couple kids. But back then it was like nobody really was the guys had kids, but not the women. So how were you able to maneuver just going on the road and all the things that you needed to do? But you are a young mother. Honestly, I have to lean on um, arrogance because the execs, and all the people involved in the business end of, of, of the record label and hip hop and everything, they were all like, oh, this is a bad idea. You shouldn't be doing this. You've killed your career. And so me being pregnant and opening up for Belle Bib DeVoe, Johnny Gill and Keith Sweat for six months was my way of basically in your face type vibes. Right. And um, that's really how I got through. I flew through that with support of uh, my husband's at the time, of course, and family. But I was determined to fly through that and get through that, you know, just brilliantly, partly because of my arrogance towards this, the naysayers. Yeah. I mean, if you can't imagine and, and we know it historically it's happened, but like today it would be so bad if you were somebody to come to you and say you're going to ruin your life. Like. You know, no one says that today, but yeah. No, no one says that today. But they were comfortable saying it back then. Yeah. They were comfortable. They were even comfortable, you know, tell me, tell me to get an abortion without telling me how to to get an abortion. Yeah. Yes. It it, it definitely was them type vibes, you know, and I basically was like, I'm not doing nothing that I don't want to do. And you were kind of without your parents, too. So, like, it wasn't like. Yeah, definitely without my parents. Because my own. Exactly. My parents yeah. were still, my parents were divorced. My father still lived in England, which he still does now. And my mother moved to Toronto, which she's still there now. So it definitely was me by myself. Right. You know? So talk a little bit about the transition to radio, because at that moment, uh, again, hip hop was just still growing. And then you're in New York City, you know, the mecca of hip hop and you end up on the radio. How did that happen? Total flute, Cole. 
my manager called me one day and was like, um, we need to go to a meeting where at uh, a radio station called Hot 97. OK, why? Uh, well, we have a meeting with a gentleman named Steve Smith, who is now no longer with us. The late Steve Smith. Um, yeah. the late Steve Smith yep. yep. And uh, so I went into Hot 97 in New York, met with this gentleman named Steve Smith. And he said, have you ever thought about being on radio? And I said, no. And he said, "I uh, well, you should. And I said, why? And he said, I think you'd be really good on radio. And I was like, I don't know a thing about being on radio aside from being interviewed on radio as an artist. You know, aside from that, I wouldn't know the first thing about running a radio show or anything like that. And he's like, well, I'll teach you and I'll help you get your FCC license. What's one of those today? Yeah. The little, the, um, little yellow card. <laughs> exactly. Yes. He's like, I'll help you get your FCC license. And, you know, I really think that, that, that this is a calling for you. So I went ahead and started training. Um, I was training like 12 midnight until like three in the morning. Myself and Miss Jones at the time, we would be together at those unsociable hours of the morning. I recall times where people would call up the station and be like, uh, you guys, microphones are still on. I hear you talking about your boyfriends. <laughs> Uh, yeah, there was times like that. Um, uh, there were times where there was dead air for 10 minutes, um, which is horrible. That's uh, in New York City. Somebody's <laughs> always listening in New York. Yeah, like what is that? Yeah. But yes, uh, and, and, and I did manage to get through that whole uh, radio boot camp and I did successfully get my FCC license and Steve Smith did put me on Hot 97 on the weekends initially and then I excelled uh, within the ranks and got to a point where I was uh, part-timer for the weekdays where I was the only one trusted if if Wendy Williams who was on in afternoons went, wanted to go on vacation but had guests booked or whatever she'd be like put Moni on in my shift for the week that I'm gone because that way I know that the guests can still come in and get interviewed because I trust her and I right. know she could do it. Right. Same thing for Angie Martinez, who was on in uh, evening the evening shift, and she'd yeah. be like, "I'm going away for a week or whatever it is. Put Moni in my shift, you know." So between Steve Smith and Tracy Cloherty, that was uh, uh, second in, in command, and then went on to being first in command at Hot 97 while I was still there, they would always entrust these important shifts to me, and then essentially and eventually, you know, put me on in the mornings with Ed and Dre. Uh, I did that stint in, uh, on Hot 97. And then, you know, when Ed and Dre left and they went to L.A. for a while, I was still at Hot 97 working a lot, working part time, but a hell of a lot of full time to be a part timer yeah. and um, still making records and still leaving the country to perform and things of this nature. And then, um, you know, Steve Smith left and uh, he came back to New York with Claire Channel at the time. It wasn't called iHeart at the time. Yep. It, it yep. was Claire Channel. And uh, started a station across the street, not literally across the street, but just a rival station to rival Hot 97 called Power 1051. And the crazy thing is the daughter that you sat next to, the grown child, she heard this radio one day because she had a little radio set up in her room because she used to cop mimic me and pretend to be on the air in her bedroom. Yep. And so she had a little radio and stuff set up in there. So she started hearing this radio station one day just playing like a like a rotating music just no talking no jock no id not saying the name of the station just playing music playing music but the music was hip-hop and r&b and so she was like what is this i used to keep tapes and tapes and tapes cassette tapes of air checks in my closet in a little shoe box unbeknownst to me she 
researched. Uh, she you, you picked up the phone and um, she heard something said on the radio that she was able to pick up the phone and, and call information and give uh, the information that she heard. She, she heard the name of the station, give the information, get the address. And she took one of my air check tapes out of my little shoebox in my closet, stuck it in an envelope, addressed it and asked her dad to take her to uh, the post office to post this for her. And uh, what she did was essentially she sent one of my air checks just it just said programming. It didn't say anybody's name to the God address. Bless heart. God bless her heart. Right. And lo and behold, it was Steve Smith that was spearheading over there. Yeah. So he got in touch with me and I didn't know why or how he got in touch with me. I was like, what made you? He's like, I got one of your air checks. And I was like, what? Like, I didn't send an air check in, you know, but well, I went in for it. You I went in remember? for an interview anyway, yeah. and uh, he put me on on Power 1051. So yeah. essentially, my child got me a job at Power 1051. No, I remember I remember that story because, you, you know, I was working there. That's where we, we actually... We met. Now, we, but we met before that. The funny story about me and Moni, we met All-Star Weekend. Oh, no, two, Toby! 2001 Toby. in Philadelphia. <laughs> And I was I was doing a party, and Shimoni was there with all of her girls. Oh my god! And I found a Range Rover key. <laughs> so I find this Range Rover key, and I'm like, I didn't know what to do because I was like, if I say, "Hey, I got a Range Rover key," somebody's gonna come and take the Range Rover and take it away. L- listen to me being responsible, right? <laughs> sure enough, Moni, this, this club is packed. And somehow you get to the DJ booth and you like, oh, my God, I lost my key, my my key to my truck. And I was like, aha. Oh, my God. Out. You should have seen your face. <laughs> you should have seen your face in that moment. You were like, oh, my goodness. And then I had no intent. I mean, I was in Philadelphia forever. I wasn't going anywhere. And then Steve Smith and Doc Winter called me and was like, hey, you know, we're launching this new station in New York. And, you know, we want you to come and work there. So I was the music director on Afternoon Drive. And then here we was like four months later and we are standing in the hallway together, working together. That was our, that was our. That first, was uh, crazy. Yeah, that, that was. was crazy. I for sure thought I was just done yeah. when I couldn't find my my truck keys. I was yeah. like, oh, my gosh. Yeah. yeah, I thought I was done. And you say so there was all kinds of there was a halo around your head when I looked at you that that night. Yeah. Like, you never oh, forgot me. You never forgot me. After that. <laughs> so then you uh, so then. um you know, uh, I, I left uh, the Power 105 and I came back to be a program director. I had never been a program director before. And I had a morning show and then the morning show changed. And so, like, it was just at the same time where they were trying to go with Star and Buck Wild. And so you were, you were doing the mornings. And then I, you actually called me. I did. And that sparked my creativity because you called me and I was like, you know what? Because I was working with, I was definitely going to hire Pooch away from the comp- competition. Absolutely. And then, I, and then I was like, Moni and Pooch. That just sounds like a really cool like show. And I always you know, thought that your voice was just unique. I mean, it is unique, but it's just when you hear it, it's like, who is that? What is she saying? It just makes you want to listen more. And so we put you guys together and we brought you to Philadelphia. That was magic. Um, to do a morning show. Yeah. That was yeah. absolute magic. Yeah. 
sure. absolute magic. Like I've, I've, when I talk about morning show experiences, that is one of my morning show experiences that is the dearest to my heart because it just was electric. Like I, and I, and I always sit there and I say to myself, let me find out Kobe knew what he was doing. Let me. Find out. <laughs> I was, I was learning on the job, Moni. Like I was just new and I had a chip on my shoulder against the, the power 99. So I, yeah. Cause you were there before. Yeah, I know. I, yeah. I, I built my whole career there. Many of the people right. that were there, I, I helped put them on or I was a right. part of their process. So I wanted to crush them like a bug. Right. So I just needed a bunch of assassins on my team. And I said, oh, Moni's an assassin. You you travel the world with with Tupac and, uh, you know, you 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 just did your thing in the rap game and you came here by yourself as a teenager. You are an assassin. So you were one of my uh, my assassins and we had a great time in Philadelphia. And then you parlayed that into, you know, other radio opportunities, uh, satellite radio and um and now you're in a- atlanta and uh working in atlanta and and it's great to see that you've established yourself um a, a secondary career for you because you're still performing like you like you you're, you're the busy lady yeah, yeah you're, you're absolutely on weekends. yeah, yeah. <clears throat> but the, cra- the the crazy thing is i for it to be um a profession that i didn't see myself getting into and then to look back at 30 plus years I've, yeah. I've been in communications now. I've been on radio and I'm really grateful to people such as the late Steve Smith and people such as yourself and people such as um, a Kashawn Powell uh, or, or Tracy Cloherty. You know what I'm saying? Because you guys helped me see something in myself, perhaps that I didn't see. Yeah. You know what I mean? And enabled me to develop a muscle that is now uh, an additional source of income for myself you know what I mean and I remember at the top of the pandemic I really sat there and said to myself you know these people along the way in life it's like God puts people in your travel along the way and your road as you as you go on your journey in life to help you to see these things that perhaps you don't see you know what I mean and 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 to help your journey and I would say that you you are all of that set you are all of that set of people so the next time you come to Atlanta stay thinner on me yeah <laughs> <laughs> McDonald's is not new to chicken. So maybe stop questioning that chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Moni, the, the final thing I want to talk to you about is, is I've always respected this about you. And sometimes it's hard for me to voice my opinion the way I really want to voice what? my opinion. When, when, that, when that ever happened, it's, Cole? It's, just the, it's the politics and what I do. <laughs> but, I understand. But you were very early on because you really saw the birth of hip hop. You were one of the first people to raise a red flag about some of the music that was coming out and some of the energy of the music. And um, there was this a lot, there was this bullshit rumor that, you know, we let you go in Philadelphia because you challenged Jeezy. And this, this was before really the internet and stuff going viral, but we had, right at the beginning of the, yeah. yeah, right in the beginning, you did an interview yeah. with him and you asked him about just the music and the drugs and it went viral and people were like, Oh, Jeezy got you fired, which was not the case. You actually left. You didn't, 
we wanted you to stay. You you walked away from the job. Right. Um, but the point is, you've always been very vocal. I, I just got to know, like, what do you think of just music today? And before I before you say anything, it's no disrespect to nobody because it's not. We just come from a different era and we've and mm-hmm. we've actually watched it all. Right. But it is so interesting right now how you can become a rapper and a sensation overnight, but you can't really rap or you're super, super, super novelty for like 10 minutes, but you make enough money to live the rest of your life. It's just a quite fascinating time. I just would love your opinion on it. Honestly, here's what I think. Briefly touching on the conversation, the in-studio conversation between Jeezy and myself, because it's very relevant to what you're asking me uh, uh, about Mm -hmm. now, right? The conversation that Jeezy and I had that became heated, that made Jeezy walk out of the studio, he was just upset and walked out at that time, was Nas's album, Hip Hop is Dead. And I think that many misunderstood that album and and what Nas was saying. He wasn't saying that, uh, you know, throw it in the trash, it's over. He was just saying hip hop in all its facets is no longer what's on the table at that time. Once upon a time, hip hop was many things. It was party time with Kid Play. It was political with Public Enemy. It was gangster with NWA. And it was, you know, free, free hippie lifestyle with native tongues. You know what I'm saying? And that's when all facets of, of, of hip hop was getting the same amount of light and water to grow. What Nas came with, with that album was basically, since that's no longer the case, and hip hop seems to be concentrated strictly on street life, drugs, money, sex, he was saying that's why it's dead, because the, the, the fullness of all facets had been shrunken. That's what he meant. So that's what I was trying to explain to you, because Jeezy actually, uh, I think it, it was brought up in the studio during that conversation and and, and, and uh, Jeezy was offended. And he said, what do you mean, hip hop? Like, this is how I get my bread. So what? It was alive when everybody else was doing it. But now that we here talking about what we talking about is dead now. And yep. so I was trying to explain to him, no. What you're talking about, you know, the, the the street part of everything, it's just one facet. There are all there are so many other facets that are now silenced, and that's why it's dead because all the facets are silenced. I couldn't get that through at the time, and I've come to realize that back then I was talking to a G. I was I wasn't talking to today's Jeezy. This man has evolved to such a level. His mind is in places of community. His mind is. I'm here in Atlanta. I see and hear about the things that he does, yeah. you know, and he does he does a lot of work with uh, my colleague, Frank Ski, right here in Atlanta, in the community, you know, giving back in, in hella ways, you know. So I've seen how this man has grown. And, and looking at that, I said to myself, dang it, Moni, I wish I was talking to this Jeezy back then. What do you call hip hop today? Hip hop is the walking dead. Where we're at today is a lot of artists, not all. A lot of artists don't have foresight. And the foresight that I'm speaking of is try to carve yourself a place out now for 10 years time. Try to think about it. Not all day, every day, but maybe once a day during your studio session with the music that you're creating. Try to have some foresight to think about where your place, what type of place do you want for yourself? 
in 10 years time. You know what I mean? Because what we're, what we're seeing with a, with a lot of the music is, a, unfortunately, a lot of the music is entangling a lot of our young artists, like their microphone cords are strangling themselves because you have artists like um, Young Gun in jail and they're, 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 you know, they're starting to look at things like, let's look at these artists' lyrics and use their lyrics to listen to what they're saying in their lyrics and it can be used in court against them. They're incriminating themselves, which in itself is a concept that is a blanket concept and it's wrong. And that's another thing that I'm, I'm working with people like Kevin Lyles to fight this. Right. You know what I'm saying? Because it's, it's just a, it's just not a good idea. Because but you don't get a movie director and, you know, call him out for the violence that he displays on screen. You know, like it's it's bullshit. Point. Okay, exactly. Right. But knowing this, knowing this and knowing that this is what's taking place, I would really pray and hope and wish that a lot more young artists would look at this and apply it to themselves to put together a plan for prevention instead of cure. And that's what I mean by having some foresight in your art. You know what I'm saying? So that you can then look towards, okay, what I'm doing now is going to set me in this place 10 years from now. This is where I want to be in 10 years. So what I'm carving out now artistically is in a plan to sit me in this particular position in 10 years from now. That's what I wish for the younger artists. I think it's coming to light with a lot. You know, some people are still going to be knuckleheads like, nah, I'm going to say what I'm going to say regardless to the consequences, you know, but I will give credit to a lot more younger artists actually pausing and looking into this for themselves. Yeah. Well, Moni, it's always a pleasure to see you and talk to you. And what was great when we worked together was that we would always have great conversations about hip hop. We would just stop whatever we were doing and we would, get lost. we would get lost in the culture and we would share stories and we would just, <laughs> we would just see that, that connection. And, you know, I, 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 now I'm like the old guy telling the stories to all of the young people. But I remember that era, like it was just like, and then we, we took that energy and gave it a little bit to the radio so that, you know, it could appease those people that had that same kind of For sure. connection that we had. So, For sure. Uh, it's always good talking about the culture. I'm glad you're able to share your story. Ladies and gentlemen, Miss Moni Love. Coming up on the next Backstory Podcast, one of the greatest storytellers in the history of hip-hop, Slick Rick. So all that coke deal and all that, you know what I'm saying? Start sliding out of that, you know what I'm saying? And all that, I'm the greatest thief in the universe. Don't even rap about it. Just learn to go another route, you know what I'm saying? And plus, you get more girls that have around anyway. I mean, how many girls you gonna, Yo, I'm gonna steal your mother's purse. I'm gonna pee in your elevator. Wow. Just give me your number. The Backstory Podcast with Colby Kolb is an Urban One Incorporated Reach Media Pod is Good production, hosted and executive produced by yours truly, Colby Kolb, edited by Donkus. Follow us on Twitter at BackstoryPCC. On Instagram, get the backstory. Senior Director of Podcast Operations, Sierra Reed. For sales and corporate partnerships, Josh Romani and Michelle Marino. Digital Marketing, Walter Gaynor, J.R. Smith, and Tim Hall. Thanks again for listening to the Backstory Podcast.